chapter 20. If you have your Bible with you tonight, Revelation 20. We'll make it through the first part of 21, God willing, tonight. From the ascension to the return of Jesus Christ, those who die in the Lord, particularly those who are martyred for their faith, have their souls resurrected from the dead to reign victoriously with the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. This is the first resurrection. While on earth, the gospel advances to all nations through the church of Jesus Christ. That's the age you and I live in. During this time, Satan is being bound and kept from deceiving all the nations of the world to unite in war against Jesus, particularly against his church. When this millennial reign of the saints with Jesus in heaven is nearing its end, Satan will be released from his prison to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, the whole world. And when the forces of Satan and the unbelieving nations have finally gathered to wage their great war, and they have the people of God cornered with no way out, fire will come down from heaven and consume the devil and his angels and the nations. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And along with all who rejected Jesus Christ, the Scripture says they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. These things were revealed to John in the first ten verses of chapter 20, which we looked at last week. Tonight, we read not only of the final judgment that follows the great and final defeat of evil. Tonight, we also get a glimpse of the eternal dwelling place of the saints with their Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. After God has judged and ended evil once and for all, He will reveal the new heaven and the new earth that He has prepared for His people, where He will be with them and they will be with Him forever. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for this Word from You. We thank You for telling these things to Your prophet, St. John, so that they would remain for us by Your providence in 2022 and beyond as they have held your church together for over 2,000 years. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have history in your hand. And Lord, I ask you tonight that you would be with me to preach in such a way that this text gets the attention it deserves in our hearts, Father, and that we are able to focus through the fog of all that is around us tonight and within, what you have said is trustworthy and true in your word. You who never lies and is never wrong. We praise you and thank you, Father. Please help me preach tonight. Help everyone that is here listen and receive these things by grace through faith. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is a more graphic picture of the judgment we first read about back in chapter 11, verse 18. The time of God's patience and mercy are finally over. The time for judgment, final judgment is here. Remember what Paul told the philosophers in Athens way back in Acts 17, 31. God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And this day of judgment is called the great white throne here in verse 11. Back in chapters 4 and 5, they describe God's throne as one of majesty and beauty, but also as the place from which he will bring final judgment on evil and on the earth. A great white throne. That image shows us that God is pure. He judges in absolute righteousness with exhaustive knowledge of everything done, said, thought, hidden, unhidden. His presence on this throne, we read, is so powerful and overwhelming that the earth and sky fled away from it. That's likely the same, uh, trying to describe the same kind of cosmic upheaval we've often read about previously in Revelation when God is judging things. Earthquakes, the removing of mountains and islands, the darkening of the sun, the moon and stars falling to earth, these types of cataclysmic images. God is revealing here, if we're reading, that the first creation, the one you and I live in, cursed by Him due to our sin, one day will flee away, never to be seen or heard from again, ever. But we'll find in chapters 21 and 22, as we close Revelation, that this will be replaced by a second and a final creation. The new heaven and the new earth, which actually began inside this creation the morning that Jesus rose from the grave. That is why he is called the firstborn of the new creation. That's what we will be like. That's what the new creation will be like. Jesus that came out never to die again. In verse 12, John sees the dead great and small, which is uh, describing all humanity from every age. All of us, beloved believers and unbelievers, every single human being that has ever lived. And all of us, all humanity is standing before the throne. This is that universal resurrection from the dead of every human being of which the Bible has spoken so often. Jesus himself spoke of it in John 5:28 and 29. It's confirmed here for us in verse 13 that this is that great judgment. Another reason we know that both believers and unbelievers are standing before the throne is because two sets of books are opened. One set is called the books and the other is the book of life. The books contain the record of every single thing every unbeliever has ever done or said. Beloved, there will be justice for all that is in perfect harmony with what each person has done. People can get away and do get away and will get away with all kinds of things here. But one day, everything that everyone who has rejected Christ has done will be perfectly judged in harmony with what they've done. You can escape mankind. You cannot escape God. And if we would think, well, that seems like kind of a a bummer of a deal because then we have to wait. Beloved, when that judgment comes, it will be so perfect and so comprehensive that we'll realize, oh, this is justice. This is what that looks like. But then for those who committed many of the same sins as those who are written in these books, 
but had faith in Jesus will not be judged based on their works. And only because by grace through faith, their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, which we've seen this appear earlier in Revelation 3, 5, 13, 8, 17, 8. Isn't that interesting? There is a book where all the names of the redeemed have been written before the foundation of the world. That's not how the books are described of the unbelieving. It's as though they put their names in that one. The names that are in the book, that book, the book of life, were written there before the foundation of the world. Dennis Johnson writes that this book is the registry of those from every nation whom he purchased for God with his blood back in 5-9. And it is the one book in all the universe that spells the difference between eternal life and unending death. Only these in verse 15 are going to escape the lake of fire. Only those. How, how do we respond to that? We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. It is not for us to try to figure out what's fair. We don't know what's fair. God knows what's fair. What we know is that we must preach the gospel so that as little as possible may be in the lake of fire. We know from 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10 that the works of believers will be judged, but that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they have eternal life. It only acknowledges what we did on this earth in His name. But here, the focus really isn't on that. It's, it's on the judgment of unbelievers mainly here from all human history. And none of these will be found innocent. None of them. All those that do evil and all the evil that they have done for which there was no repentance and faith in Jesus will be judged once and for all and separated from Christ forever in eternal anguish. The only hope for a sinner's acquittal is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the only hope. Judgment comes only to people who reject this. Our God sends no one to hell. He simply acknowledges the choice to reject Him. Let God be true and every man a liar. Why won't we be judged based on our evil deeds and words and thoughts. We know who we are. Right? We can hide ourselves from people pretty successfully, but we know who we are. We know we still struggle with sin and the flesh. So if we're still struggling, and by struggling we mean doing the things that many of those who are being judged for them are doing, why aren't we being judged based on our evil deeds and words and thoughts? Is it because eventually we prove that we were better? That we did those things less than they did? No, beloved. That is not what makes the difference in eternity. We will not be judged based on what we have done because God said in Hebrews 8.12 that He will not remember our sins ever again. It's, it's not that they aren't there. It's that God is saying, I will not hold these against you. He doesn't forget. He chooses not to hold them Against us. Salvation is ultimately, foundationally, a declaration from God about me that determines my destiny. I'm not doing anything to gain that or to keep it. He has cast all our sins behind his back in Isaiah 38, 17. That's why we won't be judged according to them. Because of the life, bloody death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we may sing with David, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. But rather, 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He just takes them away and doesn't hold them over us. That's not about how cheap God's grace is. It's about how costly and sufficient the blood of his son is. That's why some of us get heaven. Death and Hades are also cast into the lake of fire here. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Death and Hades are not two people, right? These are things. And this is a symbolic way of describing the final defeat of death. Paul talked about this very thing that we're reading about here way back in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, when he said that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And here it is. The last enemy is being destroyed. Just as the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire, so are death and Hades. This is John's way of describing the final and conclusive defeat of God's enemies and his eternal victory over every force or person that has ever opposed him. John calls this final judgment the second death in verse 14. The first death would be physical death. It's The second is spiritual death, but nonetheless or, or, or no less real or actual, right? It's eternal, everlasting, conscious torment and separation from the merciful presence of Almighty God. And beloved, not one who trusts in Jesus for salvation is going to suffer the second death. Not one. I met with a, another elderly person just this last week or the week before. My memory is escaping me because this weekend was different. But the issue again for this person was that I just now remember who it was. And she's gotten um, dementia is starting to mess with her. She's a member of our church. And I'm only not saying her name because I don't, I don't know if she'd want me to. That's all. And she said, uh, she said I feel like there was something... I, I wanted to tell you. And she stopped and she said, actually, I think there was something that you wanted to tell me. I hope, I hope I didn't. I can't remember if I told you this last week or not. So if I did, I'm sorry, but it's still very powerful. She said, do you have anything that you feel like you want to tell me? And I said, well, what is it that was on your mind? And she said, she looked away from it and she said, I wanted to know that when I die, God will accept me. Now this, in, in, in one sense, again, you've heard me talk about this before, probably. It's very sad. And of course, there's the, the idea that sometimes when we get older, you know, we start to forget things. And I, I totally understand that. But in another sense, this is very frustrating. And I don't mean like it's personally frustrating to Tony Romano. I mean, why is it that so many saints that have lived faithful lives well beyond what I'm living come to the end and are afraid that God won't take them. What are they hearing? Who's talking to them? Whose voice has gotten in their ears? Why are they so afraid? These things are certain, beloved. The one who trusts in Jesus for salvation will not suffer the second death. They won't. Jesus himself said, so, so when you are struggling with assurance, you don't look inside. Don't look inside. Don't think, what can I remember? How, how, when I look back over my life, can I see that I've done better, that I've gotten better? Don't look there. 
This is your preacher saying this, all right? Hey, everything about me, it's fine. Don't forget this. When you come to the moment of your death, you remember the promise that exists outside of you and regardless of you. Do you hear me, saints? You remember that those who are in Christ will not suffer the second death. He will accept you, I promise, or God is a liar. Don't ever forget that. By all means, some of you have served the Lord, known Him, believed in Him your whole lives. When you come to the end, don't worry then that He won't accept you. You are going to heaven because of His promise, not because of you. You couldn't shake yourself out of His hand if you wanted to. And most of us go through times in our lives when we do. He's not letting go. Or we would. That's the promise. Jesus himself said it in Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, that is the one who ends up dying in faith. That's all that means. Will not be hurt by the second death. John reiterates this precious promise here in verse 6. When he says that the second death has no power. Remember that. Back in verse 6. Over believers who experience the first resurrection. Who when they die before he returns, their souls go To him, being brought up from death to the presence of God. That's the first resurrection. That's what you would have if you died tonight. And it doesn't matter how your week has gone. That's where you and I would be if we died tonight. Why? The promise. The promise. Now, beloved. Now. What everything has been heading towards since before anything began, has finally come. No matter what happens here on the earth, no matter what we go through, or what we struggle with, or what the world or the devil do to us in their hatred of Jesus, this is our irrevocable future. This is the promise of the eternal day after. When all is said and done, what I'm about to read is what is coming for all who are in Christ, from the smallest to the greatest. It's often said that it's unwise or aloof to think too much about the future. Christians tend to say it something like that old saying, right? Don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Beloved, if we can't fix the eyes of our souls on what we're about to read in Revelation 21 and then 22 as the means by which we get through this life will never be of much use on the earth. If, if our souls can't be lifted up out of here and fixed on this promise, we're going to live as scared and as worried and as panicky and frantic as everyone that knows they have no hope and all that's coming is judgment. And God would have something better for the precious children that he died for, like you all. These verses were first written to encourage the saints of the seven churches in Asia. But they speak to us today just as certainly. And as we feel the weight of the world pressing in, let us hear them all the more clearly, right? They are here as a gift from Jesus to help us cultivate an increase and aching in our souls for the future that is so powerful It leads us all the way home. That no matter what happens, I have to get to that. That's what I hope to do for you 
in these last two chapters of Revelation over just, I guess, the next three weeks after tonight. Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This present earth and the heavens above us that we can see right now and in which we live will pass away forever. When Jesus Christ returns to destroy his enemies and consummate his kingdom. And if you'll notice back in verse 9, that this will be built on the burning embers of the old heaven and the old earth. But notice this. Notice this. The present earth and the heavens don't disappear so that from then on, Our existence is just some purely spiritual one kind of floating in the clouds above. That is not the future of believers. The first heaven and the first earth do go away. They flee, but they give way to a new heaven and a new earth. We don't know exactly what the relationship between the new and the old is going to be like. There really probably aren't any words to describe that. Will the new replace the old entirely? Or will it be a renewal of it? Will it be like this gloriously exponential improvement of what we see? Will trees be prettier? Things, things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure. Some things we know remain similar. We do know that similar at least. We'll, we'll have bodies there. We aren't, you know, these ethereal souls or mercurial spirits. We'll have bodies there. Yes, you will know who you are. You will know one another. And, but remember, think of Jesus resurrected. How he was before he went back, before he ascended, that's the firstborn of the new creation. That's what our bodies will be like. Right? Jesus still bears the scars in his hands and feet and his side as we speak. Right? He's the man Jesus Christ is in the presence of God right now. And that's what our bodies will be like. So we'll know who we are. We'll know who others are. But... Our bodies will be incorruptible and glorified like His, like the risen Christ's. There won't be any defect in them. That sounds alright to me. We were, the wedding this weekend, we were about a, a country eighth of a mile between our cabin and the chapel. By that I mean a very short amount of space and I drove to and from. I'm not walking up hills, right? My body's not made for hills. So, Some things remain similar. We'll be the same people, but we'll be transformed. But there, all things will be new. And the word new here in Greek is kainos. It indicates a newness of quality, not like a newness of time. Right? So it's, it's a better thing, this newness here. One thing that will definitely be different is the sea. It says here the sea will be no more. Now, John does not mean that there won't be bodies of water, right? Water's not evil. God uh, called that very good, right? So it's not that that has to go away because it's evil. It's in the ancient world for a long time, even times we wouldn't really call ancient. The sea was usually regarded as symbolic of evil and chaos and disorder. We can't control it to this day. I was just... Uh, saw a little video earlier about the, the Mariana Trench, if I'm saying it right, and how deep it is and how little of the ocean we actually have any knowledge of whatsoever. It's this vast, you've seen giant ships get tossed around by waves like they're nothing. I mean, it's just, we, we can't compete with water and the fear that it creates, the unknown it creates. 
It's pictured, the sea is pictured in scripture as something God has to contend with, right? It's scary. We, we, we see this in Isaiah 17, Isaiah 27 and 51 and Jeremiah 46, Job 26. Just again, you, you don't need to go to those texts. Certainly study them, but, but all they're saying is, is that the sea is something scary and unknown and this force kind of pitted against God in the understanding of people on the earth. Earlier in Revelation 13 and 17, in fact, the sea was where the beast came out of, the pagan, the rebellious nations came out of the sea, right, or are in the sea. Here in verse 13, it's the place of the dead, apparently. John is saying that the new creation, and the new creation, evil and corruption and chaos and darkness and fear, all these things will be gone. All of them. Will we swim with great white sharks in the new creation? Probably so. Probably so. So when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, it was a preview of the new heaven and the new earth. That's what it will be like when Jesus consummates his kingdom. The sea will be like glass. One day the heavens and the earth will be totally free of all opposition and disturbances and chaos and disorder. Totally free from such things. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We'll talk much more about the new Jerusalem next week. But let us all realize there will be no danger in that city. Normally when you, my wife and I were just talking on the way home, how we wouldn't really want to live in a big city anymore. I was born and raised in a big city. I loved it. It used to be my, my idea of home was the big city. You know, the smaller the house, the better. The smaller the apartment, the better. That's how I used to think. Don't want to go to the city now. This city is not a city like this. There will be no danger in that city. And there won't be any traffic or crime or pollution or taxes. But the New Jerusalem is much more than a place. Beloved, the New Jerusalem is also people, believers, you and I. When the new Jerusalem comes down of heaven, out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, remember this. Revelation is the capstone of all biblical revelation, right? And so when you get to revelation, what you're seeing is all these concepts and images and realities that we've seen God promising and speaking of, they're coming to fruition. What God meant by creating this is revealed in revelation. This is the point of all the bride metaphors in Scripture. Here, when he says the New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, the Christian mind is supposed to go, oh, I've read about brides and a husband before in Scripture. John is clearly equating the city with the church. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ is the New Jerusalem. We found that Here, we find it in chapter 3, verse 12. We found it in chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Later, in chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, it solidifies this fact explicitly. When John is told by God, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So in one sense, yes, We will dwell in the new Jerusalem, but in an even deeper sense, the people of God are 
the new Jerusalem. That's why the measurements are given and why they're so perfect and huge because the bride will be perfect in complete fullness and righteousness and eternal glory. Measurements in Scripture have to do with holiness and perfection, which is why this city is so vast and so perfectly measured. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. The portrait we got in verse 2 that pointed to this intimacy and spiritual union between God and His people, the bride for her husband. Verse 3 is interpreting the significance of those metaphors, the city metaphor, the marriage metaphor. And these fulfill several Old Testament texts, Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 37, on and on it goes. What makes heaven heaven, the new heaven and the new earth heaven, isn't really the absence of things on earth that we don't like or the difficult things. Heaven is glorious because God is there. It always makes me nervous, if that's the right word, when people talk about how heaven has gotten better because somebody that we love has gone on. Heaven's a better place because you're in it. No, it's amazing that heaven isn't a worse place that any of us go into it, right? It's, it's Heaven doesn't gain more angels, right? Why would we want to downgrade to an angel? We are the crown of God's creation. What makes heaven glorious is that God is there. So it, it isn't even necessarily the absence of sin and death, as wonderful as that will be, or the absence of tears which will be so glorious, or the presence of our dearly loved ones, which will be wonderful. What makes it so wonderful is that God is literally there with us in the person of Jesus Christ. How will we see God? God can't be seen. Yes, but all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily or in bodily form, visible form, in the risen and reigning Christ. There will no longer be any sense of separation or distance or the unknown between us and God. We will never feel looked over or lonely or forgotten. Not ever. None of that will be in the new heaven and the new earth. We'll never again feel like God is absent or that God is remote. We'll never know that again. But our closest companion and intimate friend there will be God Himself in the person of Christ. The omnipresent God who fills galaxies with His glory will make His primary place of residence with you and I in the new heaven and the new earth. Again, built on the top, if you will, of this one. So much of our time here as Christians even is spent without sensing God's nearness, without being aware of God's comfort. We don't know what His voice sounds like. We don't know what it sounds like when He speaks these beautiful things we read in Scripture, but we will in the eternal day after, beloved, no one will need to reassure us that God is with us. We will know because we'll see. Faith is a burden and it will give way to sight. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In other words, to be in the personal 
presence of God means sorrow and sadness and anguish and anything and everything that makes us cry is gone forever. I suppose happy tears will be there in spades, but no more pain. I can't remember who said it, but isn't it strange that normally on earth, under the sun, the most precious and happiest moments of our lives are felt with tears, not laughter. There, there's no mix of pain in anything. Anything. All the tears caused by grief and sin and pain and persecution and slander and bullying and insults and all these things are nowhere to be found in the age to come. Nowhere. And notice this. This promise of no more tears comes after something. We will enter the land, apparently, in verse 4, with tears in our eyes. Maybe even crying. That's why the text says they'll be wiped away. But we won't wipe them away. Do you notice that? You, you, you won't spend the first moments in the new heaven and the new earth doing this. Because it's so wonderful. You realize that? Our tears will be gone forever because God Himself will wipe them away from our eyes. I imagine that the first thing that will happen there is that all of us will, when we realize that it's there and it's ours, I don't know how we'll experience that without sobs of uncontrollable relief and joy, right? But the hands that take our faces in them won't be our own. Your tears and mine will be wiped away by the nail-pierced hands of God the Son. And the scars of our redemption, right, will be the end of all our pain and crying. Sorrow today in these lives can feel unrelenting and endless. God is going to end the endless, beloved. He will end it. And not for the moment until we cry the next time. No, no, he, when God holds our faces in His hands and says, Don't cry anymore, Tony. Don't cry, Christy. Don't cry, Bella. Don't cry, Sophia. Don't cry, Gianna. Don't cry, Carmine. Don't cry, Jim. Don't cry, Wilda. Don't cry, Donnie. Don't cry, Burley. Just put your name in there and we'll be here all night. We will hear those words. Don't cry for the last time. For our Lord said in Isaiah 35.10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing 
everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Death shall be no more. Verse 4 says, no more funerals. No more gravesides. No more late phone calls. There will be no funeral homes in the new heavens and the new earth. No cemeteries. All will be raised to glorified bodies that will never again be susceptible to disease or decay or age or violence. No disabilities. No deformities. My little brother runs on strong legs. No obituaries. No videos of pictures and memories. No flowers. Well, none to be sent. No condolences to be written. No more long lines of cars with their lights on. I I dated a girl way back in the early 90s that was killed in a pretty horrible car accident. She was a, a senior in high school and her funeral, I'll never forget this, we... There was a line of cars on 161 in Columbus that was so long, um, but, you know, just packed, like filled the entire cemetery with cars and the police escort a couple of them and all that. It just, it's so, I wasn't dating her at the time. I had formerly dated her, but it, that was a, that was a terrible funeral. No more of that. No more. No headstones, no awkward moments when none of us knows what to say. Because death will be dead. It it will be no more. It was thrown into a bottomless pit, remember, for which God God has carved out no bottom. And neither shall there be any more pain in verse 4. Our physical bodies will be glorified and made like the body of Jesus. Paul speaks of this redemption of our bodies in Romans 8.23. There he says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's Romans 8, 11. These perishable bodies will be no more, but we won't be gone. Only our earthly tents will be destroyed. And our new bodies will never know a single second or moment of pain. No arthritis, no pulled muscles, no rashes. No COVID, no flu, no car accidents, no bullet holes, no stab wounds, no bacteria, no cancer, no diabetes, no blindness, no deafness. No, beloved, the former things have passed away there. All of them. Physical pain will be gone and so will every other kind of pain a human can experience here below. There's no depression there. There's no anxiety there. There's no fear or panic. There's no autism. There's no schizophrenia. There's none of these things. No one will ever hurt there. Not women, not men, not parents, not children. Nobody will be abused. Nobody will be assaulted. Nobody will be discriminated against there. There will be none of these things. Because as God Himself declares in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Does God really mean he'll make all things new? Oh yes, beloved, he absolutely does. We'll be made spiritually and morally new. 
Our battle with sin and temptation and lust and greed and envy and selfishness will be over forever. We will know for the first time what it is to be a human being as originally created without sin. The frustration we feel now when we want to do right but still sin. When we want to be brave but we falter. When we want to stand but we fall. All these things will be gone. Every defect gone. Physical, spiritual, Mental, how can we say such things? Is this a pipe dream that human beings made up to deal with the unknown fear of death? Is that what Christianity is? How can we declare such promises and actually believe them and trust that they will come true? Why would we ever buy in to something this silly? We put our hope in so many things only to never see them come to pass. Well, the answer is given in verse 5. Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's already writing. I love it that he's told, make sure you write this down. I am telling them the truth, John. Write it down and put it in my book. Everything God says is trustworthy and true, right? Why does he... Say that here. Does that mean other things he said were not trustworthy and true? Like when we say, start out with someone say, well, to be honest, were you lying before? You just decided to start being honest, right? Here he wants us to have something of a down payment now on this promise in particular that, beloved, this will come to pass. This will happen. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is how we know these words are trustworthy and true, because they are the words of none other than the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Beloved, the one who made the promise in the past is already in the future where it's being kept God can make promises about the future down to such minute details as He does in Scripture, not only because He knows in His omniscience everything that's going to happen, He knows what is going to happen because He is the Sovereign One who has written what will come to pass. He is the Alpha. The first letter in the Greek alphabet. That's why He calls himself the Alpha, but here meaning that God is the first and only source and cause of all things. There was nothing before him. Nothing caused him. Paul says it, that for from him and through him and to him are all things. There was nothing before God. Nothing caused God. There was never a time when God began to exist. Everything came from him and everything goes back to him because he is the Alpha and he is also the Omega. So he's not just the source of history, he's the goal of history. The last letter of the Greek alphabet, omega, meaning of God, that he and his glory are the end, the goal of all things, which means history is not aimless. It's not on and on and on with no end. And we certainly aren't progressing upward. The best that mankind and our best brains put together normally ends in the genocide of a group of people that don't fit with the brave new world's vision. He is the Omega. All things lead to God's intended will and goal, including you and I. 
In the second part of verse 6 and on into verse 7, John tells us both the blessings that God will provide in the new heaven and the new earth, and then how it is that one receives them. Are you thirsty, beloved? Do you know how much you need Jesus and His forgiveness and His righteousness and His precious promises are the only hope and means of life for you? How do we qualify? How does one qualify for entrance into the new heaven and the new earth? We thirst for it. We thirst to receive life from Jesus and it costs us nothing. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned or attained. It can only be received. All that qualifies us for salvation, for eternal life, is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all we brought to the table in our salvation. The sin and desire for it that has parched our souls for our entire lives. Thirst doesn't buy the water. Thirst doesn't deserve the water. It simply receives it out of a desperation to be quenched. That's how one conquers this earth. Stops drinking from the fountains, the broken cisterns of the world to drink from the fountain of the water of life. To do that, we must realize how desperately empty we are and needy before God in our sin and in our flesh. And God gives the heritage of being His child to the one who conquers. That sounds very strong, very tough. No, no, no. How do you conquer a world of sin and death? How do you gain that? How do you become God's heritage? It's given to the one who believes no matter what, even in the face of death, that Christ is all. You don't have to understand that. And all its implications, we just have to believe it. And here, finally, all the admonitions of Revelation come to a head. This is why. This is what awaits the one who conquers. This is why you don't want to turn your back on Christ. This is why, right here. What is the victory that overcomes this world? John actually told us elsewhere. How do you overcome? How do you conquer? Faith. Something that looks entirely away from self, fixing all of its hope on Christ. And it's not, faith is not this thing you and I can work up that is virtuous and God will accept. It is received as a gift of God. When we hear the gospel, we say, yes, I want that. That is a gift, that reception of His grace. Believe and be saved and preserved for this. Some people, the only reason they're following Jesus is they, they just want to go to heaven. Yep, you got me. You got me. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but for all who refuse to receive Christ, who refuse to stake all their hope for salvation on Him, notice that's the difference at the end of all things. Those who chose not to receive the truth that Jesus and only Jesus has the power to save and give life in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, that's the first thing he calls them. The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. We all feel pretty good at this point, right? Most of us are not doing sorcery in our basement, even if we've read the Harry Potter books. Most of us aren't doing that. Most of us aren't so bad we're sexually immoral. Most of us aren't detestable and all liars. There we are. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There is eternal life, or there is 
the second death before us, beloved. The second death is the eternal torment in the lake of fire in 2015. I don't think the scripture calls it the second resurrection, but technically this would be what awaits those if they are alive when we come to this moment to be with him. But the dividing line in all this is not morality. It's not behavior. It's not commitment. It's not works or genetics or anything else of self or of the earth. Notice the descriptions here. Again, notice these things. We like to tee off on the capital S sins. People always say things like this. I'm not trying to make something that I mentioned here less of a sin or less of an abomination before God. But just be careful when you feel high and mighty and tee off on sins that we think, well, God called that an abomination. God called pride an abomination. Have you ever met anybody that is without pride? We're all abominations. So let's, let's get off the high horse. I guarantee you, we need Christ here tonight, right now, every single last one of us, as the most detestable, sexually immoral, murderous, violent, sadist out there, beloved. There is no difference. What makes the difference in the end is not your behavior. What makes the difference in the end, not what kind of sin you did. Did you say Jesus or nothing? That's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. He was my Savior or He wasn't. My sins are forgiven or I don't want them to be. Right? Lying is the most basic sin in the world probably. We started doing it before we knew what we were doing. Right? My, my, a two-year-old is not saying, I'm going to be dishonest in this next engagement with my parents. Did you eat the cookie? Did you go in your pants? Because it sure smells like you did. No. No. I'm going to check. No, I didn't. I didn't do it. All right? The heritage of God on this earth. This is amazing. The heritage of God on this earth. The name he's left for himself among us. Where did he put it? Where did he put the name of his son? On the people that are in him by grace alone, through faith alone, on the word alone, because of Christ alone. This is my conclusion tonight. All I hope you will do as we leave this evening is contemplate the new heaven and the new earth for a while. Alright? That's your homework. Just contemplate the new heavens and the new earth. Somebody told me, well, never mind, never mind. Are you desperate enough to need this place as your destination for eternity? Are you thirsty enough that the only thing that will quench it is living water? Beloved, God is not playing games with us. He isn't capricious and spontaneous. He's sovereign and He is good. In fact, He is love. After God has judged and ended evil once and for all, He will reveal the new heaven and the new earth that He has prepared for His people. For he will be with them and they will be with him forever. There is a day coming that will never end and that we will never want to. And the question is not, are you good enough to get there? The question is, are you thirsty enough to need it? 